Well, we threw out the plan. And we, now of we course. Are, I mean, we always throw out the plan. We are here in remembrance today of Julie Garwood. So we have a couple, we mostly think of this as a read along episode of The Bride, which we have mentioned many times. And we decided to just like go back to our, right? Go back which to our we, Which we mentioned on last week's episode in Heroines in STEM, which we recorded before we heard the terrible news that Julie Garwood has passed away. First of all, this is Fate of Mates, everyone. Welcome. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader today. Just a reader. Yeah. Because we're going to talk about a woman who installed many, many, many buttons for us. I think every button was installed by Julie Garwood for me. And a book that installed a lot of buttons for us, I think. Um, uh, But first, let's talk about, well... I don't even know what to say where i'm well you were okay very sad we're yes i mean i think and we mentioned this on our like a banter plus episode that's also going to be dropping for our patrons this week but um you know we uh, we tried to get julie garwood as a um as a trailblazer if you we we were not able to however she did appear pretty recently on the smart bitches podcast so we will put a link to that in show notes so if you've never heard her speaking then that might be the, the way to do it there are several really nice um obituaries one in the washington post and one in the new york times right that came out that we'll share um along with you know kind of other things we can find where people were remembering her um, obviously, we know that, you know, we we just have to, we have to do this work for ourselves, right, of remembering these people who are important to us, which is why the Trailblazers existed. But Sarah, you actually met Julie Garwood. So I, I think did. we should start with you telling us that story. Yeah, it was uh, RT, Romantic Times, which is no longer exists, but was for many years. Um, a magazine that ran reviews, sort of news and reviews from the romance world. Yeah. Um, and it, there was a conference uh, or, you know, a, I guess it was a conference. It was an event. It was really more of a reader event than it was an author event. Um, and authors would go and readers could hang out and they would go to like reader focused panels. And there were all sorts of like, you know, amazing things going on at RT. And the editor-in-chief, or the owner of RT, the publisher of RT, a woman named Catherine Falk, had, I think, really just been a romance fan and decided that she was going to start this magazine for other romance fans. And so she had a real, like, connection to that group of writers in the 80s who installed all of our buttons. Right. Right. And so... At every RT, there would always be a, a legend, like at least one. And that particular year in Kansas City, I think it was 2013. Um, yeah, it was spring 2013 because I was pregnant. Um, I There was a panel and it was Jude Devereaux and Julie Garwood together on the panel. Wow. And then afterward, they the they were just swarmed. Like the panel was amazing and it was like the two of them, you know, talking. They were it was moderated I think by Sarah Wendell. Okay. And um from Smart Bitches and at the end of it the table the they were up on a dais and the dais was just swarmed and I was like, "Well, this is my last my only like chance, right?" Yeah. 
possibly to meet these women. So I went up and I met Julie first and I burst directly into tears. Like I was like, I'm totally fine. I'm a professional. I'm going to hold it together. And I fully did not. And I told, I got a chance to tell her that like, I wouldn't be here if not for her books. And it's true. I mean, like, yeah, the four horsewomen of my romance apocalypse were those J's, right? Yeah. Like, and, right. and Julie Garwood was one of them because I think what she did, and I don't know that I understood it then, but now, you know, obviously six years, almost six seasons into, into Fate of Mates, it was, a, what she was able to show us two things, I think, which are one, heroes who had feelings. Yes. Which often we sort of, mark as being a hallmark of the early 90s but like i think julie garwood was doing it before yeah most of the people in the early 90s and um and she was also funny yes i agree i think that's a good point yeah um and so while i'm not sure like i hang out on the same branch of the romance tree with julie garwood um i think julie garwood walked so julia quinn could run Right. Like, so yes. Tessa Dare could run. Right. And, right. you know, Megan Frampton. Um, so you can really see, like, how she changed the game. But, yeah, I cried and I told her all the things. I'm so I've thought a lot about that in the you know 10 days since she passed away that, like, I'm so glad I got a chance to say it, even though I'm sure I'm one of 40 million people who said it to her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I did get a chance to tell her how important it was. And she was really kind and didn't mention that I was sobbing the whole time, <laughs> which was really very nice. Well, I'm sure that you have been on the receiving end of those conversations and know how much they mean. Right. So they sure do. They sure do. You know, so I think that's that's it. it I think that's a that's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. I, she's really, really kind. Very gracious. Yes. Well, I mean, she also seemed like a consummate professional. Right. She did. 35 books. I thought there were more, but I just this morning looked at yeah. it. It's 35 books throughout historical contemporary romantic suspense. In the later years, she was writing like suspense with romantic elements. Um, I, I you know, I think Julie Garwood of the Jays, that was my J. Right. Yeah. I mean, I loved book. I, I mean, while I say that and and I think the reason I say that, I don't know if I would have said that at the time, right? I vividly remember, I really liked a lot of um, Judith McNaught's contemporaries. Mm-hmm. I read some Joanna Lindsay, but I don't think they stuck with me the same way. Yeah. Right? And then, of course, I loved Jude Devereaux. But I think the reason I say Julie Garwood was my person is because they, of all those books... At that time, when I was like a teenager, the Julie Garwood ones are the ones that I kept, and they're the ones that I have read and reread in the intervening decades, right? So I don't know. At the time, I'm not sure I, I would have been like, yeah, I love all these. But I mean, like, I have a, I have my, I have my copy of The Bride. I don't know if it's like my original copy, but it is in pieces. <laughs> I'm holding it up for Sarah. Like, the cover came right off. I do have my original copy of The Secret mm-hmm. and of The Gift. And I remember, like, you know, it's really funny because 
the gift was those three the bride the gift and the secret were probably my favorites and i have not re i've reread the bride and the secret many many times Mm -hmm. the gift is the one where about damn it sarah where he's a pirate they're like (laughs) you know what i mean damn it sarah not our sarah and it's it's like funny because i have not reread that one and i feel like i'm almost like afraid like what if it's not as good as i remember well i will tell you that i reread the gift yeah uh well we've done an episode of, about yes Garwood before and we should right. we should say that and name that here we did it during the 2000 what was it the 20, 20 maybe the t- 2020 election we did it as a live uh, recording while our readers wrote postcards right. for um, to get people elected. So it's a little chaotic. Oh, we, yeah. Um, we'll link it here in show notes because we talked about sort of the broad kind of right. pan- the library of Julie Garwood. Yeah. And at the time, I reread The Gift. And I reread The Gift because, in my opinion... And I'm sort of shocked because we just recently did a prologue episode too, prologues and epilogues. And I don't think I talked about this prologue. (laughs) Right. Because she's four or whatever. (gasps) This prologue is absolutely, I mean, I can remember reading this as a young person. I mean, probably a child, let's be honest, like a (laughs) 14-year-old. And it just transforming me yeah. in the sense of so the 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 bride is I'm sorry the gift is such a classic romance trope the uh, hero and her the hero is significantly older than the heroine and um, they have been betrothed since she was a child right a literal child like he he was she was four and he was fifteen or something yeah. right yeah and there is it the but the prologue begins with the wedding. Like, it's an actual wedding, and it's two feuding families who've been yeah. forced to, like, marry their children, or at least, like, fa- like hand-fast their children, although she's yeah. called a bride in the thing. Um, and so it's, like, I don't know, six or seven pages of prologue, and it's a wedding, like a chaotic yeah. mayhem wedding, and all everybody wants to kill each other. Right. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, like I actually wrote a wedding where everybody wanted to kill each other, <laughs> right? As a prologue. So there it is, Julie Garwood, just like in the, in my DNA. But um, and then at the very end, right. she runs. His bride runs to the. You're in the groom's POV, arguably. Like it's narrated, right? Heavy right. narration, but it, you're only through. You're looking through the eyes of the groom, and she runs into his arms, and he and she presses herself up against him. And you're like, who is this woman? And then yeah. she says, don't let Papa smack me. Yeah. And then falls asleep on him. And yeah. the last line, the kicker of the prologue is his bride was four years old. Yeah. It's and then, great. and it's so great. Yeah. And then like time passes and then you're right. in Regency England. And I want to talk about this too, because like she wrote all over but they all feel like medievals yes yes and she's and the bride and sarah the the heroine of the gift is now 18 right and like okay sure he's they haven't seen each other and she's been like dreaming of him coming back and it holds up i mean like it's a delight it is it's it, it yeah i've always loved that i always loved that book i 
I think it was the, I mean, that was like also like, you know, the pirates and all that. You know Listen, what I mean? It was just great. Can we also say this is, this series is called the Crown Spies series. And as everyone knows, that is not for Sarah, but there is no spying, really. It's the, like, yeah, like it turns out they're, really they're not really, light. they're not, you know, they're not really. No, because pirates, they're just the job, like merchants, Jen. of course, right? She and then like, occasionally, no like, a little information this. comes their way. I don't know. <laughs> no one cares about spying. Yeah. <laughs> it's a means to an end. And well, the end is smashing. Oh, yeah. So, and so, yeah, I love that book. I saw, well, yeah, I still have that one. You know, I loved The Secret, which was um, about Judith and her best friend. And I think. You know, I, I always think of Kelly when I read it, right? Yeah. Like, even though she was not, like, it's not a book yeah. we read together. It was just, like, you know, this idea that, friendship. like, you have a ride or die, right? And then you're going where they go. And well, and she did that, too, right? Like, she invented, she she doesn't leave her heroines alone on an island for very long. Yeah, I would, exactly. That's, it. I mean, I would say it's interesting because when we talk about the bride, in some ways, Jamie is, but again, not for long, right? She like makes friends. With, she makes a community. Makes a community. That's like the key part of the book, right? So yeah, I mean, when I think about the buttons that this installed, <laughs> I mean. But these heroes also, I said this is the beginning, like, they all have emotions. They feel like. Alec Kincaid starts feeling emotions from the very moment he oh, sees completely. Jamie in the stable, yes. right? Like, he's just lost her right Absolutely. away. From the jump. And then and like, the game is her not knowing that, right? Yeah, exactly. And he's like, I mean, there's so much about, there's so much softness to her heroes that really didn't exist in other books at the time. It feels like, you know, even when, you know, when we did our read along of McNaught's Kingdom of Dreams, we we talked about how, like, one of the sort of startling and fucking amazing things about that book is that it is a full on attack on toxic masculinity and how it messes with men, too. Right. 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 Which, of course, I didn't realize when I was 10 years old, when you know was obsessed with it. Um, But. And so, you know, obviously the hero of Kingdom of Dreams, like, feels feelings, but he's so, like, buttoned up about them. Alex right. is, like... Yeah. Always smiling. He smiles the whole time. Yeah. Well, he's also... I think the other thing about, like, you know, we've said, like, all heroes are kings. Mm. I mean, Alec and Kid can smile because he is so secure in his place and his position in the way people will treat him in his power you know what i mean like there's nothing he is like this abs he's an icon of a romance hero right i mean and i think that that's the part that is also really fascinating to me is how like how drawn i am to that but also there's this part this is like a funny i'm gonna like make a weird connection which is my mom was here this week and she was here to see west side story She's always loved it. She tells this really funny story about, like, them watching it the summer before, like, high school started and, like, then just acted it out all summer. Her and her friends were obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. And we went to go see it this week. Kelly, my other friend Elizabeth, was with us. And, and like, for a lot of West Side Story, a lot of it, 
I am always like, men are so stupid. Like, what the fuck are they fighting over? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what are they fighting over? And I feel like there's a part of that gets got gets triggered when I was rereading The Bride again. Like I I read it again. I'd read kind of the back half just kind of like for fun and then like went back and reread the beginning. But like them always being at war with other people and, you know, I can only go this way because otherwise we're going to run into my hated enemies. (laughs) And I'm like the whole time I was just like, what on earth? You know what I mean? Like, this is just so stupid. Yeah, but I mean... Yeah. That is really... I was thinking as I was reading it... All right, so listen, like, I'm on the record. I fucking love a medieval. Oh, God, yes. I really do. I love this... I love that whole vibe. Like, everybody's... Like, at any point, someone could just, like, stab someone through the heart just for for looking at someone wrong. Like, I don't know. It's... I mean... No rules. It's all in there. Yeah, there are no rules. But... What's what's so amazing about these books is that she I think the part of what I love about medievals is that sort of sense of a band of mostly brothers. But, you know, like the clan concept, right? This it is the Laird and his the people he protects. Yeah. Which in later historicals becomes kind of. Mud, it, it like is muddied yeah. by, you know, the, a duke does not protect his no his like the people he who extracts his money land. from them. Yeah, he just <laughs> collects taxes and that's that. Like, but prior to that, and listen, there are definitely historians listening to this right now who are like, Sarah, do not <laughs> like. We're talking about this. Like, romance. I'm talking about romance land, right? <laughs> romance lands and romance lairds, romance lairds. Uh, you know. There is a sense of like at some point everybody's going to be in the keep and they're going to pull up the drawbridge and like there's, you know, at all these like thick thighed seven foot tall warriors are going to protect like the people who need protection. And um, and I think like that the the DNA of that or like the natural um, ancestor of that in romance is like the motorcycle king. The mafia uh, yes. romance, the, you know, yes. Navy SEAL team, like as much as it all sort of gets it gets wrapped up in, you know, all the bad shit that comes with all that stuff, right? Like military industrial complex shit. Right, but it's a modern day equivalent of it. Yeah. And it's it's like, that's, I think, why that stuff is so, you know, like that's the button, right? Like just billionaires, just rich guys. Like that's not the button for me. Well, no, billionaires right? are dukes, right? So like, right. there's no guarantee that they're going to protect their workers. In fact, right? Unless it's Heather Heather Guerre, then he's going to divest his wealth, but only for her. I mean, like it's not like he was going to do it beforehand. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Trelina Pucci, author of Not So Lucky. Eleanor is out for a night in Vegas, and just as anyone who's young and beautiful is out in Vegas, maybe partying and drinking and having a good time. And does she wake up married? She sure does. (laughs) It turns out that she wakes up the next morning married to an insanely famous bad boy quarterback. Oh, yes. They had a great time the the night before, not just drinking and partying and having a one-night stand. There's a 
a menage with some friends. There's like, a, you know, she had an awesome time. But it turns out that her plans to like skedaddle out of town with an annulment are put on hold when he needs a wife. He sees her as the opportunity to clean up his bad boy act and look like he's on the right path. So it turns out Eleanor, who thought she was not so lucky, might have hit the jackpot all along. Oh boy, you can read Not So Lucky in print, ebook, audio, or with a monthly subscription to Kindle Unlimited. And thanks to Trelina Pucci for sponsoring this week's episode. We have also talked about one of the evolutions that has happened in romance that I think is the in the better for me, especially in like the the male female romance right the, is at the beginning it felt like every series was tied together by the ties that men have right mm-hmm. so it was like the laird and then his like second in command and i think one of the reasons i love the secret so much is that like the ties that drove the story were between women and now we can get you know hell spells and you know and that's not super new i mean obviously we've had that for a while but it felt like at the time, you know, there really was this very staunch belief that the way these books had to be marketed and sold was like this men's football team. And that, you know, it still mm-hmm. happens, obviously. I'm not saying this doesn't happen. But, you know, the idea that like the important ties that were going to bind the main characters together moving forward would be by women is something mm-hmm. that just didn't really exist at this time. Yeah. Right. Not not in my mind, not that I can think of. And I don't know if I could say who the first was, but I can tell you it wasn't happening then. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so in the, in that sense, like Jamie and uh, every future, you know, heroine or whatever there, it's like a new woman coming in, not like a new man coming in. And I, I think that's part of the reason I probably really love the secret so much. And even the gift. It's. He, it, like, becomes a pirate when his, like, sister, right? There's one about his sister who was, you know, the kind of a pirate. Mm-hmm. And then she, like, passes on the mantle. So I also think there was part of me that really liked that, like, in Julie Garwood's world, women were were really important, right? They yes. weren't just, like, ingenues who entered the stage, you know, on the altar of this, like, iconic man. Like, her heroines are different, but they are just as memorable there's something about them that is was very like they these were not like bella from twilight self-insert type heroines to me no right no i mean there i talk about this a lot with um you know growing up being a teenager and reading these heroines they were blueprints for like how i wanted to face the world right Mm -hmm. Jamie is so brave. She's so strong. And like, she's so strong from the jump, right? Like, there's the whole like, oh, yeah. Listen, Julie Garwood does a lot of like eliding backstory in this book, right? right? Like, we know Jamie was, you know, her mother was married to her father while she was like heavily pregnant with another man's child, Jamie. Right. Um, but her father took her, like, at first we're sort of meant to believe that her father took her in out of, like, the goodwill of his, yes, his just joy and love for her. Right. And I think he does love her in his own way. Like, she doesn't feel like she's been ill-treated, but it's clear, it becomes very clear that, like, Jamie was basically, like, 
brought in to like be her sister's keepers. Yes. And she figured out. Or on this read, the other way I felt was that Jamie at some point figured out, this is how I make a place for myself in this family. Yeah, this is how I thrive here. Yeah. Right? Like I see a need and I got some sort of praise for doing something and then then I'm going to keep doing it. The, f- the funny thing is, is and again, I like rereading the whole thing this time. I there are moments of like real like again, like clarity, like, oh, me too. Um, I had I had some friends who I went to visit their home. My friend Sylvia was very ill and I was like, OK, what can I do? And like I would go and visit them and like yeah, I was like, how can I help? And at one point, Jim, her husband was like, you love like being given like things to do yeah like and I was like and I don't think I realized it about myself but I'm like I'm going to show you I love you by like doing you know like doing whatever you need me to do like just tell me and I'll do it yes and it was really fascinating to like read that again and have like when she like right when she sort of talked about her place in the family and Mm -hmm. you know like she's so pissed at him for not giving her duties I was like oh "Oh, my god I had to Jamie's really sit love with that. language is Jen's love language. <laughs> it really, I not with acts the healing service. things, acts of service, and maybe nope. with the temper, and the temper a real Scorpio. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think what's really fascinating about this character, though, is just going back to the bravery, right? Like when she is faced with like, now you're going to marry a complete stranger mm-hmm. who is also a warlord, and like definitely is terrifying to look at like she and like all your sisters just weeping and wailing all around the keep she's like no this is my duty and also i will like i will take this for the team yes and that's my job stands up to him from the jump yeah she is you know the the whole scene on the horse where she's like (laughs) I hate this saddle because she's so used to riding bareback. Right. Like, you know, which, oh, that's such a like, that's, <laughs> that's such some a of that, particular yeah. kind of romance heroine, right? Oh, yeah. Right. But like, I cannot be saddled. Suffers. I cannot be tamed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. She suffers him and the like fear because that's her job. Because yeah. she's that she's a romance heroine and romance heroines have to be queens. Right. Yeah. Like and so there's just something really magnificent about these heroines that we grew up with being. They're not self-insert, like you said, they're they're roadmaps. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I really felt that way. I can pinpoint like the heroines who really made me feel like yes. this is the person I want to be. They're aspirational. Right. Right. I think that was so there are a couple other things I really enjoyed about Jamie this time around. So her temper Mm. was is like, honestly, I sort of forgotten that aspect of her. Um, Not that she wasn't like going to stand up to Alec, but like the way like there's the scene where, you know, the McPherson baby is sick and she, Mm -hmm. you know, and like this old man comes to get his baby he thinks is dead and she totally like loses her mind right and then she's just like mm-hmm. you know she like hits him and it hits his horse and it's like get out of here you old goat and then like turns around and alec is there and she's like oh shoot he probably saw the whole thing 
there's a way in which her imperfections felt very real to me, right? Like she was not presented as just like a paragon of virtue, right? Like she was just this like, like crusty, salty, going to turn into a like crazy old bat kind of character. And I was like, I love her. Yeah. Jamie at 70, no fucks to give. I mean, like she'll tell you, she's that old lady who's going to tell you. Yes. Exactly what she thinks. And I love it. And you better it. be ready. Armor up. <laughs> but, right. well, there's also the great scene at the end of the book where he's, like, in deep discussion with somebody about the king coming. Yes. Um, yes. And she comes in to, like, basically say to him, like, somebody tried to assault me. Like, yes. basically, like, this teenager teenager who's gross, like, grabbed me. And she's like, Alec, there's something I have to tell you. And he's like, handle it. Like, because he trusts her, right? Like, he's like, you're capable. You can handle whatever. Because she doesn't actually articulate what's happened. Because obviously if she does, Alec would lose his fucking mind. And like, you know, (laughs) like disembowel this poor child, this young person, right? So she goes and she like pulls down this like war hammer from the wall. Like dragging it out behind her, right? And then she whacks what ends up being his twin brother. I mean, this is a classic Garwood like, so funny. humor moment, right? Yeah. right? Where she's like knocked this other person onto his ass and he's like, I don't understand what's happening. Right. And then he's all subjected. You, are you saying my brother tried to do something? And she was yeah. like, no, he did. And <sighs> he's, and then Alec is like, what, what is happening? Why are you weaponing? Yes. The guests. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. And you it's know, a fucking delight. I think the other thing it really speaks to for me is how much of like how much of the comedy of that scene, right? The way that it is funny, it's not funny because of it's a funny situation. It's funny because of the character. And I feel like there's a way in which and I think it's just because of like how movies and TV are whatever, right? Like situational comedy is like has a name for a reason right so you put this character into a situation and then like wacky hijinks ensue Mm. but this entire scene is like the opposite right it's kind of like okay what would happen if this character (laughs) ran into somebody and that's i think the other part about how the the humor in this doesn't feel I mean, don't get me wrong, like, situations can be really funny, right? I'm not saying that they're not, Mm -hmm. or that's an invalid way to be funny. Clearly, that's not the case, because everything on television tells is different. But there's something about the way the humor in this book works, in that she is never the butt of anybody's joke, right? It's funny to us as readers, because we see this character, like, living in a way that is so real to who she is, but she is never once played as like being a fool no and she's she brings chaos to this very ordered (laughs) society right yes yes. and at the beginning it's very like is this just because she's english which is a funny joke right Mm -hmm. like it it plays well like it works it works really well and there are a couple of moments where like you know it's an obvious punchline Mm -hmm. but you're absolutely right that like that ultimately the humor in this book is like you said situational and also about just like fish out of water right yes and but everyone adores her 
Yes. She feels fish out of water and everyone else is just like, please just like come be my fish. Right. Like all I, I right. just love you so much. Right. Well, and I, Which I, is the dream, right? It's like the community. Yes. It's really a community building dream for somebody yeah. to like walk into a new community. We do this all the time as people. Yes. And all you really want is to feel like the rest of the community just wants you there. You know, it's funny because there was this really interesting question in our discord this week one that i've been thinking about and it's on our list as maybe a potential like possible future topic and it was like about core story and it was like what's the difference between someone having a core story or someone telling the same story and i was like that's a right it's a, that's so isn't smart. that a smart question i was like okay so i'm gonna spend more time thinking about it but one of the things i would say like a button that julie gar would really installed in me is uh, the is my belief that a core story of romance as a genre is about belonging, mm-hmm. right? Is that like the idea is, is that in in a romance, even, it, you know, maybe you are one of the people already belongs and one of them doesn't. And that like somehow you're going to come together and find this like new family. And in that way, like the relationship maybe to that man has changed. We're going to have a uh uh trailblazer who's an editor who's talked about like how she feels like it's it's changed from like sort of my relationship with a man is what drives the romance to like found family Mm -hmm. but i think that like always always romance has been about belonging and this is a very powerful story of you know these people didn't quite understand me but now i am being the person i am yep and i am not just accepted for it who I am is welcomed into this yeah, community. I'm, I'm a vital, valued part of this. And that, that to me is something that real, that belief that that's what romance does at some level for in every book, no matter what, comes to me and was a button that was installed by Julie Garwood. This week's episode of Fated Mates is sponsored by Jessica Martin, author of The Dane of My Existence. Listen, I love a pun. Uh, you are going to love this entire premise. So Portia Barnes is a lawyer, a big time fancy lawyer in Boston, but she is from a small New Hampshire town called Bard's Rest. And the deal with this town is everyone loves Shakespeare. Aww. And so there's an annual Shakespeare festival, of course. And then our villain slash hero benjamin dane comes sniffing around um he's a hotshot commercial developer i love a commercial real estate developer do you know that about me i I mean not in real life in real life thumbs down do not want but in books i really love a like she's fighting for her scrappy cool quirky town and he wants to come in and build high-rise apartment buildings in new hampshire is that what this is about i mean there is uh networking outmaneuvering one-upping it's all gonna be amazing and so what we've got is listen ben's going down Okay, I feel like we just add, like, end right there with that, honestly. So anyway, Portia and Ben, what's going to happen in Bard's Rest with Shakespeare? Uh, the Shakespeare Festival, uh, it's going to be something you're going to want to check out in print, ebook, or audio. Thanks so much to Jessica Martin for sponsoring this week's episode. As a special treat for Faded Mates listeners, you can stay tuned after the show for a special audio excerpt of the Dane of my existence which is out right now 
Also, you just can't discount the like the way that she weaves that community story um, almost invisibly. Oh, yes. Until the end. So yeah. I want to talk. I want to just take a second because we did. This is a deep dive of the bride. Right. So but I want to take a second. And I want to talk about structure and craft here because Julie Gard makes a really fascinating choice in this in this book at one yeah. point. So. So, okay, the it begins in England, but very quickly we leave England because Alec and his best friend, Daniel, who's also who is about to be a laird of a different clan. And point of order, there is no Daniel and Mary book. And I'm sad about it <laughs> um, because that sounds really like, listen, aside at some point. So Mary is Jamie's sister. And at some point, Mary turns up at and Jamie and she basically says to Jamie, like, my husband still has a mistress and I don't know yeah. what to do. And Jamie says, <laughs> you should tell him you understand that he needs more practice before when he can come to you. And when he's ready, you're ready. <laughs> and I was like, that is a scene that I want immediately in my eyeballs. A plus, like, yes. Hilarious. And also, Brilliant. imagine the level of McGreeve brain that would come <laughs> no, when this like powerful brilliant. Laird is told he obviously needs more, more practice. I understand you need to keep practicing. <laughs> But uh, Julie Garwood never wrote that book, and that's pretty sad for me. We but. should have just, like, fanfic for the scenes that we want that, like, weren't written. That's right? what I just want that. Moment. I just want the scene in the master where he's in the bathtub. Like, she's in the bathtub at night, and he is freaking out <laughs> because know. he cannot find you her. Know, that's all I want. That, this is the thing. I feel like I want Cressley to write the Daniel and Mary book. <laughs> yes. There you so, go. So, okay. So, but leaving that aside, what was I going to say? Oh, crap. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So... Then they get so Daniel and Alec can't spend one more night in England. They just can't. It's no too much, too much to be born. So they go to Scotland, and then very quickly they separate because of you know aforementioned wars. plans. And uh, and Listen, then they end up yeah. At the same time that I'm like, men are stupid. I will tell you, I don't think there's a sexier word in romance than the word warlord. I, I know. hate myself. I, know. I hate myself. I'm like, why are men like this? Warlord. Now tell me more about that. Tell me more about the warlording. We're so basic. We're so, so basic. basic. I'm a basic bitch. It's um, fine. Anyway. Listen. All right. Craft. Sorry. Go so, ahead. They get okay. separated. But back to. Listen, we could talk about warlords all you want. I'm going to add it to the list. So we get I me. Mean, yeah. Uh, so then. Jobs. Um, warlord. <laughs> There's a section for jobs. Let's add it right now. Um, okay. So they get to, G- to Alex Keep. She is introduced to the clan. Fine, whatever. But, and so she's basically like, I am going, the end of the chapter is something like, Jamie vowed to like, make herself useful. Yes. You know, or whatever. The next chapter begins, she started three wars (laughs) in the first week. Yes. (laughs) And this is where I want to talk about craft because it could easily have been, she started three wars in the next week. And then the next chapter is like, first this happened, yes. then this happened, and then, or not chapter, the next paragraph. Yes. First this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and ah, ha, ha, it's so funny, it's all played for punchlines, right? And then the story continues. Right. But no, the book is the three wars she starts. Yes. Right? Yes. So like, the first, and so what's amazing about it is the structure, so, so Julie Garwood, this is for the writers out there. 
what Julie Garwood does is in that one sentence in chapter whatever, four or five, yeah. you you get, she, she lays out the roadmap for herself and for the reader. This yes. is the book you're going to read. You are going to read the book, the story of Jamie Kincaid starting three wars on behalf of Clan Kincaid yes. over the course of one week of her marriage. Yes. And then Julie Garwood like paints by numbers, right? Like she like follows the bouncing ball through the three wars. And then we get that like tremendous scene at the end when like so delicately seated at the beginning that there's like a man who she's betrothed to in England who like comes to get her. Yes. And of course, by that point, there's no question. There's no question Jamie's leaving. Like, yeah. Not only is Alec gonna literally destroy anything, and I was gonna say lay down his life, but he would never need to. No, he's never. He's gonna to. literally like destroy a whole. He'll destroy worlds for her. Yeah. But then also, she not only she started all these wars, and then simultaneously ended all, all of yes. the battles between the clans. Like she yeah. unites Scotland <laughs> in seventy five thousand words. Right. Well, so it's interesting. I'm going to tell you since I have the book in front of me. She started three wars is the beginning of chapter 11. It's page 189. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Right. Because there's the journey back takes a really long time. Right. Like they're in my head. And I literally just read it like two days ago. Well, it's also really interesting. You didn't read it in paper. And that's the thing. Like you kind of forget. I was like how long they're on. They're on the road. Right. But I mean. It's still the half, there's still half of the book left. Right, because right? he does I rapper mean, in his plaid. We'll get to that. Yeah, well, exactly, right? I mean, so it ends on page, I don't know, 358. So it's, so yeah, it's, it's not 75,000 words. That is a 100,000 word book. It is a long book, and but it just reads like a dream. Like yeah. I really, it's like it's such really a- It's really fast. It's so yeah. fast paced. Right. Well, and it's also, that was the other thing that I was really fascinated by this, too. She started three wars in one week, is how, right, like how quickly she essentially, that all happens, right? You know, Alec is out warlording, and she's home at the keep, like, saving people, rescuing babies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you so, know what I mean? But so much, listen, we have a problem right now in romance. I'm going to get in trouble. Worth it. <laughs> it. No, listen, we have a problem right now in romance, and I'll tell you what it is. The problem is that we have a loud contingent of people who are talking a lot about how somehow conflict is bad. Yeah. Right? Plot is bad. And that is not the case. And I'm not saying every book has to read like The Bride. Sure. What I am saying is that the way that there is a group of there are there are a group of people who are say who talk about conflict as though it is a negative, right? As opposed to being deeply human. I'm saying like, well, my point is this: you can have both. Like, there can be books like The Bride, and there can be books that are very low conflict and like just like our characters vibing in the ocean right Right. maybe not the ocean today the ocean is not the ocean today right but like when we pit 
and romance eats its own young a lot, right? Yeah, always. When we pit ideas like this against each other, we're none of us doing the genre or the book service, right? There is something to take from both sides, right? When we say conflict isn't enough, when people are saying like, oh, I hate books with a lot of conflict, what they're really saying is like the character work isn't strong enough for me in those books. I think so too, yeah. And when we say, oh, that book is just about like two people like vibing in the ocean, like what we're saying is like there isn't enough gas in the engine for the page turning, right? Right. So one is not better than the other, and we can all learn from each other. And so our problem is that now it's like, well, low conflict is like all, you know, that's the valuable romance right. and the other stuff isn't. If you read The Bride, there is so much plot going on in this book. Like mm-hmm. there's the threat. There's like the road trip. Yes. 180 pages of road trip. And then another hundred. 30 pages of three wars started in the first week. Yeah. Plus an evil like villain who yes. killed Alex's first wife <laughs> and now wants right. to kill Jamie. Plus the um threat of her original you know betrothed coming her, to get her original right. betrothed plus the sister who's like just causing chaos all over the place. Like there's so much happening in this book and still yeah. When Alec realizes that he is in love with that woman, it is a sucker punch. Yes. So like, yes. right. You can have both is what I'm saying. I think what happens is that people conflate, I don't know, like goodness or niceness, right? With like low conflict and like, listen, two very nice people can still fuck each other up. Right. Like mm-hmm. it, that, there's nothing like conflict is so human. Right. Because people see the world differently mm-hmm. and experience the world differently. I mean, and that's the thing. Like, right. Like J- one of my favorite parts of this book is that in the wars that Jamie starts, which are all because she heals people like right from various clans who she's not supposed to heal. Every single one of the soldiers knows what she is doing and knows like knows whose baby that is, knows whose child she just saved from the boar. Like everybody knows who these what's going on, but no one is going to stop her because it's the Laird's wife. Right. And so Mm -hmm. there's this part where you're like, but that's how conflict works in the real world, too. Right. People see things a different way. And other people are like, well, I don't know if I can get involved in that. And I'm just going to have to. I mean, and I, I think that's the part where it's kind of like when people – I don't really know what people want, honestly. I'm like, if you just want people who agree with each other all the time and never – I don't it's, – I, it's a confusing call to action for me, right? And it's it, – because I just feel like people – I just think d- the books yeah, are doing know. different things. Yeah. Right? Like, I think there's no – I think – the low, the sort of the books that are just like a hundred percent vibes to use Tully Hibbert's yeah right. way of framing them, right? Um, they feel like they're really structurally and like socially doing a different thing. They're like comfort, yeah. right? It's like I'm gonna like wrap myself in a warm blanket 
and, and like, have a cup of tea. Calgon, take me away. Yeah, exactly. And it's because like we've been doing so much emotional and and right emotional work, anxiety, the anxiety of the last few years. The like it makes sense that these books would be very like popular right now. Sure. Um, and that people would want them simultaneously. Like the genre is still doing yes. all this other work that it's been doing. It's been churning for 50 years right yeah and so it's just that the books are doing different things yeah and they're very valid you know like readers readers want both i'm just i get very nervous when i hear us inside the genre saying like well you know my way is better right right well I think the other thing I'm starting to really see is the difference between self-published romance or indie romance, right? Versus traditionally published romance. I mean, and I just I just mean that literally like like there's rom-com like you don't get a lot of self-published rom-coms, but you mm-hmm. do get a lot of traditionally published rom-coms. There's not a lot of traditionally published dark romance, but there right, so I also feel like Maybe it's I, I'm not saying this in like any kind of way other than maybe people are just like saying like this is the place where I can explore this idea, even if it's intuitive. And yep. this is a place I can explore a different one. So I also think there's this part of me that really believes like, well, if you're not getting what you want in one of those areas, then you just find it in another one. Romance is this yeah. huge, massive tent and sometimes yeah. I, I have to remember that myself, too, when I get frustrated. Like, well, wait, this doesn't matter. If I don't want to read this and other people do, then I just go to another part of the romance pool and swim yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, also, listen, now we're down. This is not about Julie Garwood at all anymore. But we're – but it kind of is. Yeah. Because, listen, I just want to say, like, part of the challenge right now is we – the loss of RWA – yeah. And I don't mean RWA, capital RWA. I mean, like, the loss of an organization where romance writers and critics and yeah. thought thought leaders can come together and talk about craft. Yeah. And what we can learn from each other. Yeah. Right? Like, how somebody who writes like Julie Garwood, where, like, the plot is so so critical to the story and somebody mm-hmm. who writes, you know, something closer to 100% vibes can learn from each other how right. to do the job better. Yeah. Is the loss of that is keen. Yeah. And I can't stress that enough that like the that is a conversation that writers should be having with each other. Yes. And yeah. I don't know where that conversation is being had. I mean, I know it's being had in my text boxes. I know I know it's being had at lunch when with my friends, but like I'm also I have this community already. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by the Smut Lovers Conference happening in Orlando, Florida this September. Um, If you are a writer or a reader or a lover of kink and BDSM, this might be the perfect place for you to go in September. Um, It is the largest educational event for romance authors and readers you've 
ever seen. Uh, Coming to Orlando on September 21st through the 24th, this multi-day conference will be filled with workshops, panels, and demonstrations all about kink and BDSM. Uh, The goal of the Smut Lovers Conference is to bring together lovers of all things smutty in a safe and loving environment to learn from each other and share what we know. You can find out more by going to smutlovers.org. They also have a Facebook group, Smut Lovers Community, where you can find out information about the conference. If you're interested and want to register, you can use the code FADEDMATES to get 15% off of your ticket. Thank you to Nikki Rome and the Smut Lovers Conference for sponsoring this week's episode. Well, and this is the part that was really interesting. I read this, I don't know if it was an article this week that was like, we're reaching the end of the usable internet. And what it means is... Eric keeps saying this. Right? Like everything... And look, we're part of it now too. Like we are abandoning Twitter because it's run by... It's Right? It's terrible in every way. And so now we're like, right? Like retreating to discords where those conversations, if you're part of them, you're a part of them. But if you're not, they're hidden from you. Right? You know, so like we have our discord, but there are other big romance discords, right? Like, so there are potentially people who are in multiple discords who can maybe kind of germinate or cross pollinate conversations. But like, it just feels like we're at the point now where like the internet is just a garbage place where things are on sale, right? It's like a shitty Walmart now. Yeah. And that it, it, it does really make me sad. Like there's no more RT, right? That's been gone for a while. I mean... You know, it's just like the there's everything's just like re-siloed, essentially. Yeah. Like, right. The golden age of the internet was this idea that like it would all be free access open. We'd all be there in the same place in like the virtual town square. Yeah. I mean, right? I do now think- it's the virtual lockbox. Exactly. And I think that one of the failings of one of the, you know, harshest uh results, I guess, of the pandemic is this kind of loss of community. Yeah. And I mean that as like face-to-face community, um, which we immediately all transferred to the internet. And then now look where we are, right? Like it just got too big for us or too much for us or too, I don't know, too. But I want very much, I I feel like art gets better when artists iterate each other. Yeah. And like exchange ideas. And it feels like um, there is a rigidity in writing right now, in writing communities mm-hmm. right now. Um, and I don't think that's, I don't think it's, at yeah. least when I speak to people who are creators in other spaces, I don't think it's limited to writing. Right. But I think like this question of how can we learn from each other's skills is getting lost. And, mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is because of what you just said about the internet, but I also think it's about like just the the community, the fab- ironically for a, for a genre that, as you just said, is all about community, right? Like yeah. the fabric of the romance craft community is really thin right now. Yeah. And I want to change that. I mean, I don't know. Now this is just a different kind of podcast, but like, yeah, I really, really want to change that. And so if you're out there and you're like, you also want to change that, like. Yeah. Let's figure out a way to do it. Yeah. And I think that's, I think one, I guess I'll say this though. It's like, 
I also think there's a lot of power in smaller communities that have like similar values, right? Mm-hmm. That are, are that are also forming, right? And so I think it's a question too of like once you get a bunch of small communities that have formed mm-hmm. around like a common purpose, goal, belief, right? Then how, right? How do you find a place to like work among those groups, right? right? But also like yeah, these like. What do I want to say? I feel like the conversation around books like this is so important, right? Like, what is this book fundamentally doing? Yeah. And why did it install? Why does it continue to install buttons? Simultaneously, like, what are the books that are installing buttons now? And yeah. how how are they doing it? What can we learn from them? And that's right. where we've really, like... Obviously, you and I care a lot about this and we think a lot about this and that's why we do these deep dives. Um, But yeah, you're right. I mean, small communities are what's next. Yeah. Well, Um, but just keep reading the keep reading these books, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's it. It's like there's a lot. One of the things I feel like I really learned from you is sometimes you're reading a book like not because it's like a very popular book, even if it's not for you still has something to teach you, right? Or about who we are as a group of people, right? Like, so these books that, you know, like are super popular right now, maybe I wouldn't have picked them up normally, but maybe I will to just think like, okay, like, like what is this doing? Yeah, how what's is the this, story it's telling? How is this The Bride 5.0 or whatever, right? <laughs> and because it's been a lot of iterations since The Bride. And, and, and like, what do they have in common? Like, right, what's that common DNA? And I think that's what was really, like I said, like going back now to The Bride, like, right, when I think about, Right. A strong heroine. Right. This really powerful sense of community. Right. Like Mm. humor that is based in like the heroine being awesome, not in humiliation. Right. There's so many ways in which this is really, you know, but then like all the goofy violet eyes and, you know. (gasps) Violet eyes. Right. Mine. Mine. I mean, there's these are buttons that got installed in me. Oh, yeah. Young. A thousand. And then. You're wearing I we I won't oh. take you until you're wearing my plaid. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh my god! The enti- <laughs> I mean the entire thing about her not being able to like make the pleats. I don't know why. Like I it's know. just and so perfect. That scene when the king. Yeah. That oh, it's such a great scene, right? And then the king offers to fix her plaid. I mean, yeah, it's great. Wowzer! It's just such a fun book yeah it's such a delight to read this book yes and i do think you know we talk about i talked about the family tree early in in the episode and we talk about it a lot this sort of like who's on what branch of the tree and i've actually there have been a couple times when i've talked to shannon donahue um about somehow like really like Mm -hmm. doing the tree of romance although i know it would like immediately it would be wrong but but god it really feels like the garwood branch delivered so many beloved authors like yes after her i really i really think every person out there and i know there is a whole generation of readers who are obsessed with tessa dare and i know that everybody's like waiting for the next tessa dare book and what i would say is as you wait yeah this is where you go next yeah go. trust us this yeah. is where you go next i do want to name uh what's her name agnes no that's the sister's name 
Yeah, the bad the one. The bad. Yeah, the the one. Wait, who... is her name Agnes? The are we like spoiling the villain? A yes. Yeah, right. Isn't it no. Agnes? Are we spoiling a book that was published in 1987? Exactly. Okay, good point. Fine. Um, I'm not wild about that. Well, look, here's the other That's thing. That's a little okay, tweaky, look, that whole... Here's what we will say. And I think we've always been really clear about this, right? Like, these books are written in the 80s. And some look, some of them... Like, this one, to me, is very... is Holds up better. But, like, yeah, it's certainly super problematic. But, I mean, there are ones... Like, there was one I read where the whole villain was, like, essentially, like, closeted. And I was like, oh, boy, this isn't great. Right? So some of them... Yeah. Right? Oh, Remember? Really? Yeah. And you're... So, you know, that's the thing you, you all have to really realize is, you know, please, every... You know, we... This book, I think, can be read by anybody. But I'll find out which one. Honor Splendor, maybe. I can't remember. But, um, you know, in this case, Agnes was... And her sister were like abused as children. as children, and um, Agnes is also like kind of perpetually childlike, right? Like they, there's not a diagnosis. It's a medieval. Like it was just you know Jamie is like she's just one of those special people who like sort of never was able to like grow into being an adult cognitively. Um, and so, yeah, she ends up being the bad guy. Like, it turns out, you know, she's twisted inside or whatever. And, yeah, I mean, a lot of that. But you know what, Sarah? Here's what I'll say. The face I'm making, you guys. It's not great, everybody. <laughs> and it's it's what's funny is it's like, again, when you read a book you've read a million times, kind of like, OK, I'm reading it for the purposes of discussion. There are things that I just have like. Annie. Annie. Eliminated from my brain. And like that whole I plot. I had totally forgotten this plot. It's also just, because in yeah. this case, it's not necessary. Well, but this was really common back in the day. It was like, you know, like woman in the, danger, yeah, right? Well, Which we then see with Claypus, like, oh, yeah, it's got to end with somebody being kidnapped. I mean, yeah. the DNA to dark romance is also, right? Like this it's whole idea is. wired in here. Yeah. I mean, but and what's interesting, though, is even Garwood, though, like the purpose of Annie's villainy is to prove that Alec to sort of underscore Alec's reputation and his past right so right. it begins with him burying his wife yes right um in unconsecrated ground yeah. because she's been made to it has been she made to look as though she committed suicide when in actual fact she was murdered right and um and you know, she, but also there is a moment, you know, where the one thing that Garwood does really thoughtfully here and feels much more modern is the way that Jamie deals with this like specter of his first wife. Yes. Like there's a great moment at the end where she's like, we're going to move, we're going to extend the cemetery so that where she is buried is now consecrated. Yeah. And then you're going to be buried next to her and I'm going to be buried next to you. So you have two wives to like keep you settled in for, <laughs> for all, all eternity. of eternity. And it's really a delightful yeah, right. moment because often widow, widows are not treated or I'm sorry, like dead like previous wives, wives. Yeah, are right. not treated great in romance. Yeah. And that's the part I think I think another part of if I could like say at this moment, like the a, like a button that Julie Garwood installed was 
this idea that like romance heroines had a a purpose other than just becoming happy themselves and that was like calling out something that they saw as being wrong right like this is not right that she was you know like the injustice of in of you know kind of bearing people who we thought committed suicide and unconsecrated ground like god didn't love them anymore right like that was really i was you know that she goes off and she finds out that helena had a daughter and that you know and she's like i know that's a whole other plot thread yeah where she's like yeah okay in this book who knows where that baby is like and they just go get her right like she's like this is our daughter now right and that's that's the part too that i found very the, like the thing about a fish out of water is it's not just their discomfort but if it's done correctly it's also showing the community they're entering that they are something they all take for granted is in fact unjust or wrong right like it has to work both ways the acceptance into the community for the fish becomes identifying something about the water that needs to be changed and i think that's that's the other thing that this book does so well is her ability to sort of look past like those set rules and say, you know, yep. this isn't how this should be. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really fun read. It is. Yeah. It's worth it. And if you have never read Garwood, this yeah. is a good place to start, especially because, like I said before, you'll be able to see so much of yeah. the, the early the yes. early historical here. Yes. Right. Also, if you've never read a medieval, this is a really good one to start with. Oh, yeah, sure. She's just like, I'm sad I don't want to ever eat mutton. <laughs> I think the thing I would also say, I mean, we talked a lot about plot, but I I think the character work here is really exceptional. Mm-hmm. And I know that we're like kind of running out of time. So I'll just say, I think that there's a lot of ways in which um, she leans really hard into like small choices that that make that, like just like work really well for me so back to mm-hmm. helena's daughter right like they marry mary alice who's the, the, mary name of the baby? mary catherine the baby um when they get her she doesn't talk right like she, and and this is actually it's jamie's observation while she hasn't been with them long enough she's still sweet tempered you know to like sometimes abused children are are get you know are are very warped by like whatever they they went through and this is that observation like alec is like oh wait you know he sort of starts to understand that maybe it was annie um but so mary catherine doesn't talk really at all until the scene right (laughs) where it's perfect yeah (laughs) right but it is perfect and it's like this thing where it's kind of like so jamie and her sister, I think, you know, are hatching some plan and, you know, they know about something. It's and mamey. Yes. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> a good right? word to describe right? this like, plan. Completely. And, and, you know, Mary Catherine goes over and hangs out with her dad and... Like, crawls onto his lap. Yes. And just... And is, like, doing somersaults. Listen, don't he, trust children. And he says, <laughs> They're Where's all your, narcs. <laughs> Where's your mother? No. Again, you know, Jamie's been her mother for 36 hours, and she just tells him everything. And it's just <laughs> so... I don't know. And I found myself, like, really admiring mm-hmm. those small... I don't know, like... Sometimes I think people think you have to do something really big to show us who a character is. Yes. And what this book shows you time and time again is you have to do do something small to show us who the character is. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, 
also just it's so tightly done. There's this real sense of like everything is perfectly knitted together. It's just it's just a really beautiful book. It's beautifully done. Um I want to say you don't seem to have the copy of The Bride where there's a foreword by Julie Garwood. Do you have that one? I don't know. Do you? I do. And I just want to say um so I read there's there's this lovely foreword which which was even lovelier was made even lovelier by the fact that like we've lost we lost her so recently and so it was nice to like read something about yeah her thing so she talks about how an interviewer asked her a question once that said like if you could suspend reality and go back in time and live in any of your stories which would you choose and she chose she would choose the bride um and she talks about you know how she was taking a medieval history class and that was why she wrote this particular book in this particular time and she talks about how she crafted Jamie and Alec and then she says um uh the bride was the first of my books to appear on the New York Times bestseller list and it validated for me the direction I wanted to take i guess it also proved that there were millions of readers out there who share my somewhat twisted sense of humor <laughs> i'm so thrilled that readers have asked that the bride be released in hardcover my editor recently called it the quintessential garwood and i call it the lesson i learned from the heart oh. so you know, if you've been seeing everybody on, in romance talking about the bride being, yeah, you know, a, a real seminal text, this one, this one's for you. Anyway, thanks, Julie Garwood. Thanks, Julie Garwood. I countless hours of reading pleasure, and lots and lots of people. I think I can't remember exactly who once said, like, it was on Twitter, like Julie Garwood, and like I imprinted on Julie Garwood. And I was like, that is the right bird. Yeah. Yeah. You can have it all. Star three wars, unite Scotland. Repayment for the Lady Kincaid. Yeah. Get a warlord to fall fall in love with you. Warlords. The thighs. The thighs. (laughs) Bathe in a Scottish lock. Sure. Sleep in a Scottish plaid. The, live the dream, everyone. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I'm here with my friend Jen Prokop. You can find us online at fadedmates.net, at fadedmates on Twitter, at fadedmatespod on Instagram, or if you just can't get enough of us, you can join us on Patreon, where you have access to special episodes and a Discord, which is full of like so many people who want to talk about romance novels all the time, just like us. Learn more about that at fatamates.net slash Patreon and join us there. Also, don't forget to stay tuned after this episode for a special audio excerpt of Jessica Martin's The Dane of My Existence. Scene 3. The Bower After Hours I slipped into the Bower After Hours the music thrumming in the low-lit space, and the smell of expensive leather mingling with rum and mint. I had to hand it to Candace. She'd transformed this latest expansion of Titania's Bower from the slightly stuffy restaurant you frequented for graduation dinners and other stilted special occasions to an all-out scene. Want to get married somewhere gorgeous and tasteful in the woods? Try the gardens of Titania's. In the mood for quirky dinner theater? Try special events at Titania's. Chef's tasting table for two or 22? 
to Tanya's fine dining experience. And now, the Bauer After Hours, Bard's Rest's only speakeasy-style establishment. No menus, no Shakespearean kitsch, no social media presence, just A-list bartenders with ink and signature drinks for days. Sidling up to the gleaming hardwood bar, I scanned the shelves of glistening bottles in search of the right drink. A bartender with an impressive gingery man bun and even more impressive forearms set down the lemon he'd been zesting and offered me a dazzling smile. What can I get you? He asked in an Irish accent that was sure to earn him a slew of fervent admirers in short order. Oban neat, please. I have the 14 and 18 year. 18, please. That's a big kid drink, said an admiring voice to my left. Without turning, I used the bar mirror to size up the owner of the voice. Tall and dark-haired with a strong jaw rising out of a five o'clock shadow. Sporting standard-issue charcoal slacks and a white button-down open at the neck and rolled up at the elbows, signaling he was all business but off-duty for the day. What can I say? I like my drinks like I like my men, I replied to his reflection. Adult. I offered him what Chris called my ice-pick smile. As the name suggested, it was not an inviting smile, but one that threatened highly creative malevolence if provoked. To my surprise, though, the guy only chuckled, the sound low and rich, like those wrapped caramels swirled with bourbon, one of my rare but favorite indulgences. I couldn't quite make out the color of his eyes and found that I wanted to know to complete my assessment of him. Pivoting ever so slightly, I turned to regard him with an open curiosity that had caused many a male specimen to break eye contact. But this guy didn't flinch. He stared back with an expression as frank as my own. Those eyes were a dark and textured gray, something my sister, the writer, might have described as rain-soaked granite or something swoony like that. And they had a magnetic pull all their own, which likely served him well in whatever line of work he was in. All in all, handsome but not obnoxiously so. I appreciate someone who knows her way around a scotch, he said, as the bartender returned with my drink. Any chance you're a bourbon drinker as well? Not really. I'd picked up my affinity for scotch from Gerald, who liked to offer his team a pour of the good stuff he kept in his office after we'd closed a particularly big deal. Potential HR nightmare aside, I enjoyed this little ritual, associating that delicious complex smell and the burn of the liquor on the back of the tongue with a job well done. Nobody's perfect, he said with a mischievous grin. Can I convince you to try the Barrel Bourbon Gray Label 15? He raised his own glass for my inspection. All right, I'll bite. Pitch me on why I might like to opt for some trendy overhyped bourbon swill instead of my classic scotch. Behind me, the bartender let out a surprised snort. The guy didn't back down, though. If anything, his grin intensified at the challenge. It presents with notes of blood orange, lychee, and damson plum, but it checks its own sweetness with paraffin and scorched earth. So it drinks like waxy fruit? I leaned a little closer so he could see me widen my eyes. And you thought scorched earth would be a selling point? Those gray eyes shone with sly merriment. With you? Yes. You strike me as a woman who goes unapologetically scorched earth when the mood strikes her. It's more like when the situation warrants it, 
I corrected. But I think I'll pass on your trendy, overhyped bourbon. What if I told you I know the crew that makes it and they're a scrappy bunch that founded the company with nothing but a few barrels and money begged and borrowed from friends? When I drink it, it reminds me of the need to be gritty to produce something so smooth. It's like I can taste the effort that I know went into it. For the first time, I offered him a real smile. An intoxicating medley of exotic fruits, paraffin, scorched earth, and determination? Exactly. Maybe I'll consider it. I let a slow smile spread across my mouth before pushing off from the bar and sauntering off toward the spiral staircase without a backward glance. I found Candace, head event planner and the undisputed monarch of Titania's, perched on a plush chaise in the presently closed to the public VIP lounge. Lean, leggy, and occasionally prone to tossing her honey blonde hair when pissed, Candace Thornton was the only person I'd ever met who I thought actually embodied the term cultish. She waved at me, rolling her oceanic eyes and pointing toward her phone with an apologetic grimace. I nodded and strode to the railing to survey the scene below. And what a scene it was. In addition to the inviting leather chairs and couches that Candace had expertly placed around the room, there was a motley array of steamer trunks serving as tables and gilded maps covering the walls with places I was certain didn't exist. Fillery, anyone? Allowing my eyes to wander over Candace's gorgeous table lights, glass pots of amber that reminded me of honeycombs, I caught sight of TDP, tall, dark, and presumptuous, with a pair of equally attractive men in bespoke after-work attire. They'd attracted an orbit of young women in bodycon dresses who were laughing too loudly and bringing down Candace's carefully cultivated class factor. TDP's expression remained polite, but a little bored as he sipped his bourbon. Interesting. Hey, sorry about the interruption. How was your drive, twinsy? Candace joined me at the railing. Uneventful, I answered, smiling at the joke. While we certainly didn't look enough alike to pass as twins, our similar builds and men's general inability to distinguish between cool tone and warm tone blondes provoked the question enough while we were out together that it had become our inside joke. I wouldn't have minded if Candace had been my biological twin. It would have evened out the Barnes household. She and I could have balanced out Miranda and Cordelia's general weirdness with our level-headed, ordered approach to life. I admire the aesthetic. I know it's not your darling empire city. Candace drummed her mint manicured fingertips on the balcony railing, but we make do. If we were in the city, you'd have a quarter of the space and lower ceilings. I swept my arm toward our private lounge. You wouldn't get a people-watching spot like this. I'm enjoying the vibe tonight and the fact that I could actually get a decent drink at the bar instead of being jostled seven bodies deep. Did Rowan take care of you? Candace asked, nodding to the bartender. He's still getting his legs beneath him before the summer starts picking up with the influx of bartolators. Before you know it, they'll be in here trying to order ale in their bad British accents. She cocked her head at me. Come to think of it, I've never heard yours. That's because I don't have a library of bad British accents to pull from, I assured her. Just because I grew up here doesn't mean I'm enamored of the bard like everyone else, present company included. I admire Shakespeare, Candace said primly but you know I'm not slavish about him, particularly the way he wrote women, virgins, villains, or bust. She wrinkled her pert nose. 
but it's the theater life for me. Give me some Treadwell, a little Beckett, and a Miller Chaser. I'm not sure death of a salesman would appeal to your dinner theater clientele. Oh, of course not, she scoffed, which is why I've taken great pains to update Much Ado About Nothing for a modern crowd. Everybody loves some Beatrice and Benedict, but wait until they see them as two maladjusted therapists vying for clients. That could be fun, I hedged. Come try out for Beatrice, you'd be perfect. Are you implying I'm maladjusted? I could swap out the word therapist for attorney and nobody would bat an eye. Hurtful, I sniffed. You are great as Lady Capulet. Come on, step up this year. Take a bigger role. I can't, I demurred, sipping on my scotch. Why, because your calendar is packed? Still hurtful. I shot her a wry smile. It has more to do with my general abhorrence of all things theater and, oh yes, my crippling stage fright, of which you're well aware. But you were able to master it last summer. You're such a no-shit-taking badass that way. Well, of course I am. But when I get on the stage and there's all the lights and the inability to see people, it sets off my fight or flight. I only played Lady Capulet because you blackmailed me into doing it. More like extortion, she pointed out. You're the lawyer, aren't you supposed to know that? The sound of a booming male laugh rose above the strains of Charlie Parker. It was a million dollar laugh, the laugh of a closer. My eyes followed the sound, and somehow I knew who I'd be looking at. And there he was, granite eyes and all, laughing at something his companion must have said. Leave it to you to find the biggest shark in this room, Candace noted. What are you talking about? I'm the biggest shark in the room. You're a close second. That guy is like a lemon shark at best. More like a tiger shark, she murmured, sipping her drink. That's Benjamin Dane. Is that supposed to mean something? Her lips quirked. He's a developer out of Boston. I'm surprised you don't have a dossier or something on him already. Because I'm Carmen Sandiego in this scenario? I snorted. So of all the gin joints in the deep dark woods, What's he doing in yours? Too early for Bartolators, and he doesn't look the part. Wedding? No, wait, D3 lacrosse reunion? Rumor has it he's in town scouting some property. For development? Please. Walmart and Target can't get a foothold here, what with all the zoning regulations designed to keep Big Box out. What's this guy think his angle is? Why don't you ask him, since he seems to be staring at you? Against my better judgment, I glanced over to where, indeed, Benjamin Dane was watching me. I lifted my scotch in the corner of my mouth a little to mock toast him. He inclined his head. I'm not sure I like the look of him, I muttered. I like his looks just fine, Candace drawled, a smidge of her southern roots showing. Watching the soft light play across his strong jaw, I silently agreed. You said he's out of Boston, right? You wouldn't be scoping potential clients in my place of business while on sabbatical? Candace demanded, clutching at her imaginary pearls. I'm a managing partner now. If his shop is big enough, maybe Mr. Dane is in need of local legal counsel. Never hurts to keep one's finger on the pulse. Let me know if you hear anything else on him. Does this mean I can count on you to try out for Beatrice then? Is that the going rate for favors among friends these days? I frowned. But before she could respond, 
we were interrupted by a now familiar Irish accent. Rowan stood at the top of the stairs, a serving tray in one hand. Looking at me, he said. The guy trying to sell you on scorched earth at the bar sent these up. He gestured down to the two generous pours of bourbon. That wouldn't be the Grey Label 15, would it? I asked. Rowan nodded solemnly. At least it's not that Cosmos swill. Candace rolled her eyes. Rowan thinks drinks should not taste like Jolly Ranchers. Good man, I agreed. Please give our thanks to the Bostonian holding court in your bar. Rowan nodded gamely, deposited the drinks with a flourish, and clomped back down the stairs. Care to explain? Candace said, inspecting her drink. I took an experimental sip and was surprised at the sweet and smoky balance that filled my mouth. When I looked up, I saw Benjamin Dane staring at me with one eyebrow raised. I held up a hand in the gladiator thumbs up, thumbs down position and waggled it back and forth, coming to rest on thumbs up. His ensuing grin was as rich as the caramel notes in the bourbon. With a low chuckle, I murmured, the game is up. What now? Candace asked. Portia Livingston Barnes. I should never have told you my middle name, I sighed, sipping the bourbon again and finding that elusive note that Benjamin Dane had described as scorched earth. Did you quote Shakespeare? Of course not, I said, taking another sip for posterity. Miranda might have been able to recite entire monologues on command, while Cordelia had memorized every innuendo and insult the bard had to offer. But what resonated for me were the lines whose meaning people got wrong, like this little gem that everyone thought meant all was lost. But it didn't mean that at all. In Shakespeare's time, the game is up would have meant that the hunt was off and running. I eyed Benjamin Dane and sipped the bourbon. Something definitely felt like it was off and running, though I couldn't have said what exactly.